turn in the Holy Scriptures to Matthew chapter 8. We've recently considered in the book of Matthew from chapter 1 the birth of Jesus. On the occasion of baptism, we consider the baptism of Jesus. And now my intention is, from now until Easter, to trace some of the mighty works of our Lord Jesus Christ as found in the book of Matthew. And we begin with chapter 8. Let's read together the first 17 verses of the chapter. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And now begins the words of the text of the sermon, verses 5 through 13. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. We read the word of God that far. (coughs) 
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1 of the chapter that we read says, When he was come down from the mountain. That's a reference to the mountain on which Jesus preached his famous sermon on the mount, which is recorded in the previous chapters. And we are told that when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. In other words, what was going on before he went up into the mountain continued after he came down from the mountain. Because we read in Matthew chapter 4 that in those days before Jesus preached that Sermon on the Mount, chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy. And he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Great multitudes of people were following Jesus at this time, early in his ministry, and they were beholding his mighty works of healing. Jesus performed many wondrous works throughout his earthly ministry. So many miracles did he perform that according to John 7, verse 31, someone would later ask rhetorically, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Meaning, in other words, these miracles make plain that Jesus is and must be the Christ. In John 5, verse 36, Jesus himself explained the purpose of his many miracles. The works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. The mighty works, miracles, wonders that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry bore witness that he is the Christ whom the Father hath sent into the world. And through him, the Father is fulfilling the many promises of old, to bring salvation to his people, as well as the renewal of the whole creation. When Jesus came down from the mount, a mountain somewhere in the land of Galilee, he entered the city of Capernaum, which was by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus entered into the city, we are told that a centurion came unto him, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. There's a parallel account of this event in Luke chapter 7. According to the parallel account, the centurion did not himself personally go to Jesus, but he went to Jesus by sending the elders of the Jews. He called the elders of the city of Capernaum and sent them to Jesus 
beseeching him to come and heal his servant. As a centurion, this man was a commander in the Roman army. He was a commander of about 100 soldiers, and thus the term centurion. This man, being a centurion, was not a Jew, but he was probably a Roman. And we know for sure he must have been a Gentile. The fact that he was a Gentile becomes very important in this passage. The faith of this centurion becomes a sign, according to Jesus, that God is about to call his people from the east and from the west, that he is about to bring the day when the Gentiles will be gathered in. As a centurion who was stationed in Capernaum, a city by the Sea of Galilee, in the land of Galilee, this centurion must have been under the authority of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, was the ruler of the land of Galilee. This centurion was an official in the service of Herod Antipas, an ungodly man. But unlike his ungodly authority, the centurion showed love toward the Jewish people. In Luke chapter 7, we read that this centurion loved the Jewish nation and even built them a synagogue. He used his own money to build a synagogue for the Jews there in Capernaum. We're going to consider the mighty work of Christ in the life of this Gentile centurion. I call your attention to it under the theme the healing of a believing centurion's servant. Let's notice, first of all, the great faith of the centurion. Secondly, that it was a sign of many more Gentiles to come from the east and the west. And finally, we will notice the miracle, the healing of the paralyzed servant. In this passage of Scripture, the Holy Spirit depicts for us in a very striking manner, that true and genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby alone we and those who are dear to us can be saved. Saved from our sin and saved from the grievous torment that is brought into our lives through sin. The Holy Spirit depicts this true and genuine faith in Christ by relating to us the words and the actions of that centurion on that particular occasion. Words and actions which would bring forth from the mouth of our Lord Jesus these words, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The centurion was a man of great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he manifested his faith by coming to Jesus in a time of great need and urgency through the elders of Capernaum, beseeching Jesus, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. 
When we look at Luke chapter 7, we find that this servant, which was probably just a boy or a lad, was very dear unto the centurion. The centurion loved this servant as his own son. But we also read in Luke that the boy, the servant, was so sick that he was ready to die. He was sick of the palsy. The sickness that the King James Version calls the palsy was a sickness of paralysis. It was some kind of sickness of the nervous system, a disease in the brain or in the spinal cord that laid him low, that cast him down upon the bed of suffering. And that's really the meaning of the original in verse 6 of our text. Lord, my servant has been cast down. He has been laid low at home, sick of paralysis, grievously tormented. The boy was laying on a bed in the house of the centurion, writhing in pain from his paralysis. It's possible that this boy, unable to walk, unable to move, was experiencing a progression of paralysis in which his body was becoming more and more immobilized, more and more racked with pain, so that he was tormented, tortured by this disease that had afflicted him. And it was so bad that Luke tells us he was ready to die. The boy was edging closer and closer to the portal of death. The situation was serious and urgent. That sickness of the palsy was a very striking picture to us of our own spiritual sickness by nature in Adam. It's a striking picture, the sickness of paralysis of a boy totally unable to move and to walk, laid low on a bed of suffering, writhing in pain, ready to die, of our natural state, spiritually. Born into this world, paralyzed, unable to walk with God, unable to move in terms of anything that is good and right, grievously tormented with sin and the sufferings of this present time, the curse that is upon this world, And as the baptism form says, this life is nothing but a continual death so that we edge closer and closer to the grave. That was the situation of the servant of the centurion. The centurion probably had tried everything to bring healing and relief to his dear servant boy, but nothing had worked. He heard that Jesus had entered into Capernaum, the famous Jesus who had been moving about through Galilee, healing everyone with sickness and disease. And he revealed his great faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior when he came to him. Matthew tells us that he came to Jesus. And as we have seen, Luke tells us that he sent the elders of the Jews to Jesus. But these are not contradictory. They harmonize perfectly because it was the initiative of the centurion. He was the one who came to Jesus through the elders. The elders had no errand with Jesus. The centurion did. And the centurion, through them, came to Jesus, reached out to Jesus for help, 
for salvation, for healing. And by that act, he revealed the great faith in his heart. He believed in Jesus as the Christ. The great faith of the centurion was not an irrational setting aside of reason, setting aside of hope in all medicine and doctors and science and the technology of the day, in the vain and desperate last-ditch effort to try to find some healing for his servant. This was not a blind leap of faith that the centurion took. But the faith of the centurion was like all true faith. It was, first of all, a certain knowledge that what God had revealed to him was true, particularly in respect to Jesus, his identity, and his power. And furthermore, that faith was an assured confidence, a hearty, sincere confidence in his heart, in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, that Jesus was able, that he had the power to save his servant, and that he alone had that power. And not only was it a confidence that he put in Christ, but it was a confidence that Christ would indeed come and help him. That Christ had not come into this world merely to save others, but also to save him and also his dear servant. That was a true and living faith. But a question that comes to mind is, how did this Gentile centurion have such great faith in Jesus? We know from other scriptures that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. God works faith through the hearing of the gospel. The faith of the centurion was not something that he stirred up within himself by his own free will and ability, but it was a God-given faith. It was a faith that God gave to him through the gospel. At this point, God had already been causing the gospel to go forth in Galilee. God was causing the good news that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Lord, and the Savior. That was spreading. His fame was going abroad throughout the towns of Galilee. And the reports were being given of the mighty works of Jesus. This centurion may have heard the report, for example, that just a short time prior to this, a nobleman from the very same town of Capernaum had traveled to meet Jesus in Cana of Galilee, as recorded in John chapter 4. When Jesus was coming back from Judea, north, back into Galilee, he came into the town of Cana, where he had changed water into wine, and a nobleman from Capernaum met him there in Cana. This nobleman, like the centurion, was from Capernaum. This nobleman, like the centurion, was no doubt an official under the authority of Herod Antipas. It seems very likely that the centurion and the nobleman knew each other. So it's not surprising or far-fetched to say that 
the centurion no doubt heard the report of what Jesus did for the nobleman. The nobleman had gone to Cana when his son was at home sick with a fever unto death. The nobleman had rushed to Cana to meet Jesus there and begged him that Jesus would come to Capernaum and heal his son who was about to die. And Jesus sent that nobleman back home and said, So be it unto you. And when the nobleman went home, he found that his son was healed. The fever was gone. He was restored to health. And he asked the servants in his house, when did this happen? What was the time when he recovered? And they told him it was the exact same time when Jesus had spoken to him back in Cana. These were the mighty works that were happening at this time. And no doubt the centurion of our text heard the good news of what had happened to the nobleman. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The centurion heard the word of the gospel, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Lord and Savior, who is mighty to save. And it was through that gospel that God worked faith in his heart. And has God worked such faith in your heart you have received something far greater than the centurion. You have sat under the preaching of the gospel Sunday after Sunday, year after year, some of us throughout our whole lives. And do you believe the gospel and what the gospel says about who Jesus is and what he alone has power to do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is strong to save and who alone is able to save. But what we find in the text is that what made Jesus marvel, what Jesus found to be so great about the faith of the centurion was how he responded When Jesus came, we read in verse 7 of our text that Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. That is, Jesus said that to the elders. And then Jesus, with the elders, started to walk through the streets of Capernaum, going to the house of the centurion. And they must have sent messengers ahead to the house of the centurion to notify him, Jesus is coming. He's going to heal your son. The centurion then sent some of his friends, according to Luke, out of the house to meet Jesus, to stop Jesus, and to say to Jesus, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. According to Luke, he said it this way, Neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Notice two things that the Holy Spirit portrays for us here about the nature of true, genuine faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, the true believer, even if he is a great man, a mighty man, a centurion, a man with authority over a hundred well-trained Roman soldiers, even if he is a business owner with wealth and power, even if he is a mighty man in the church, the true believer sincerely acknowledges from the heart, I am not worthy. I am not good enough. That's the literal meaning of the Greek word in our text. He says, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Not worthy of what? He said, I'm not even worthy to go and to meet Jesus in the street. And I'm not worthy to have Jesus come to my house under my roof and bring the blessed power of salvation. I'm not worthy of that. I don't deserve that. I haven't done anything to earn or to merit Jesus coming to me to save me, to bless me, and to heal my servant. Who am I, O Lord? I am nothing. I am nothing but a sinner, a poor, wretched sinner. And what is this? that the Lord of heaven and earth come into human flesh, should come to my house and come under my roof and bring healing mercies into my household. Of that I'm not worthy. I'm only worthy of the wrath of God and the judgment of God for all of my sins. I'm a sinner. That's all I am, a sinner. That first of all, is the manifestation of a true and genuine faith. Faith is a humble thing. Faith is not a proud thing. Faith means I recognize I am a sinner, unworthy, unable, powerless to save myself, powerless to save my children and all those who are dear to me. Just a weak, poor sinner. But then in the second place, the Holy Spirit reveals to us here, here about the nature of true faith, that nevertheless, recognizing that about myself, I look to Jesus and I trust in him. And I go to him knowing that he alone is able to help, to heal, and to save me and those who are dear to me. And that he is able to do it by merely speaking the word. That's faith. The certain knowledge and the assured confidence of heart that Jesus is who God says he is. That Jesus has the power that the scriptures reveal him to have. That the gospel reveals him to have. And that Jesus is able to save by the mere word of his power. The centurion reveals that great faith by those memorable words that he spoke in verse 9. 
he says to Jesus, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. The centurion would say, I know. He was saying, I know what it means to be a man of authority and a man under authority. I'm a man under authority. And when King Herod tells me to go there, I go. But I'm also a man of authority. And when those 100 soldiers under me, when I tell them to go, they go. And when I tell them to come, they come. I have the power and authority to do that. And yet... Although he had that power and authority, he considered himself unworthy of Jesus, who has all power and authority over all of the hosts of heaven and all of the forces of nature. He's saying, I believe, Lord, that thou art able to say to this sickness, go, and it will go. And to that disease, go, and it will go. You are able to say to your servants, all of the creatures under heaven and on the earth and in the sea to do thy bidding, and they must. The centurion believed in the power of the word of Christ to save. Do you believe that as well? Do you believe yourself to be unworthy of Jesus? Unworthy to meet him? Unworthy to have him into your home? Unworthy that he should save you? Unworthy that he should save those who are dear to you? Your children? But do you also recognize and put your trust in him and believe that he and he alone has the power to save you and those dear to you, to heal all your sicknesses and, and diseases. When Jesus heard that, that's when he said the word of verse 10, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. What an indictment on the whole nation of the Jews at that time. That wherever Jesus had gone, he had not found such faith as the faith of this Gentile centurion who believed Jesus is Christ, the Lord and the Savior. I'm not worthy of him, but I trust in him and in him alone by the mere word of his power. To heal my servant. Then Jesus said something very remarkable. But something that should not have been really all that strange to the Jews. And certainly should not sound strange to our ears either. When he said, verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We must remember that this centurion was not a Jew, even though he lived in the midst of the Jews. 
He lived in the land of the Jews, in Capernaum, a city of Galilee, surrounded by Jews. But he was not a Jew. He was probably a Roman, an Italian. He was a Gentile for sure. And up to this point in the history of the world, God had primarily been saving his people from the Jews. But now, amazingly, this Gentile centurion, who probably grew up in paganism, worshiping the gods of the Romans, engaging in all kinds of debauchery, worshiping Caesar, his emperor, renounces all of that and puts his faith in Christ. The reason is that God gave him that faith. And God gave him that faith because God had chosen him before the foundation of the world to be one of his children. And out of that decree of election, God had regenerated his heart and planted the seed of faith and caused it to grow through the gospel so that a Gentile, plucked out of heathenism, was grafted into the covenant, was brought into the kingdom of God, into the church of that day, and brought to salvation with his house. That was very unusual in those days. But it should not have been a surprise, because God had promised for many hundreds of years to do this very thing. Notice what Jesus says, Many will come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those men were the patriarchs of the Jews. The fathers, the ancestors, the fountainheads of all the Israelites. But what had God promised to Abraham? When God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, already in Genesis 12, he had said to Abraham, this is part of my promise to you, Abraham, that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And God had said to Abraham, look up at the stars and see if you can count them. So shall your seed be. God had said to Abram, Your your name will no longer be Abram, but Abraham, because you will be a father of many nations. Abraham had received the promise that springing from him, God would create a people out of all nations of the world. So that the true seed of Abraham would not be his physical descendants, but his spiritual descendants, Just as Abraham believed, all those who believe are the children of Abraham. That was the promise. The Jews knew that promise from generation to generation. And in case they should forget, God raised up psalmists to remind them, such as Psalm 22, where David prophesied that all the ends of the world will turn and remember the Lord. When the psalmist spoke of the coming of the day, when the nations will sing and praise and give glory to the God of Israel. And in later times, he raised up the prophets, such as Isaiah, 
to tell the Israelites, the day is coming, the great day of the Messiah. And when that day comes, the Gentiles will flow into Jerusalem. They will fill the streets of Zion. The Old Testament is filled with the great prophecies of the coming day of Christ. And they tell us that in that day, the covenant will extend from the Jews outward into all the world. And God will save people from every nation. And so it's on this occasion, early in the ministry of Christ, that a Gentile centurion is brought to a living faith and salvation. And Jesus takes the opportunity to say to all the people standing around him there outside the house of the centurion, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. This centurion is no longer an exception. In the Old Testament, there were exceptions. Ruth the Moabitess, Rahab the harlot, Naaman the Syrian, the Ninevites. Exceptions. Now, no more exceptions. Many shall come from the east and the west into the kingdom of God and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Beautiful words of our Lord and a marvelous promise. Jesus is reiterating and he is expounding the ancient promise of God to save a people from all nations. Many shall come, Jesus says, from the east. East in relation to Galilee, Capernaum. Put yourself in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. Many shall come from the east, Jesus says, from those vast nations yet unexplored by us. Arabia, India, China, and the islands of the seas. And from the west, those vast nations on the pale of civilization, beyond Italy, Spain, and France, and Germany, and the yet undiscovered Americas afar off. Many shall come because they will hear the gospel. The gospel will go to them. They will hear the preaching of men sent to preach it. Missionaries who will hazard their lives to go across land and sea to bring the good news of salvation. And hearing the gospel, God will bring them to faith. And he will bring them into the covenant and kingdom of heaven. Many will come, he says, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those patriarchs representing the Jews. The Gentiles will sit down with the Jews around one table. The word that Jesus uses in the original calls to mind the picture of a table and people sitting down together around that table. He's saying the Jews and the Gentiles will all sit around the table together. They will dine together. They will eat and drink together. And that beautiful picture of the table points us to a family. One family enjoying fellowship together. Eating, drinking, laughing and rejoicing. Conversing with one another around the table. 
It's a picture of the fellowship of God's everlasting covenant of grace. Jesus is saying, God will establish that covenant of grace no longer just with the Jews in their generations after them, but now he will extend his covenant out to the Gentiles through missions. And they will be brought in. And they too will enjoy fellowship with God and God's people in the covenant. This announcement of Jesus has come true. Jesus said those words some 2,000 years ago. And what has happened since then? Exactly what he said. Since that time, many millions and millions have come from the great nations of the East and the great nations of the West into the kingdom and church of God through missions. The last word that Jesus would speak to his disciples would be, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Preach the gospel in all the nations. And I will be with you always. And that's exactly what happened. Missionaries went to the east and they went to the west. They went into pagan lands. Some of them were martyred. They were killed. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder for the sake of the gospel. Nevertheless, they kept going. They kept preaching. And through the preaching, God called men out of darkness into the kingdom. This word of Jesus in our text, together with all of the other scriptures, is this very thing, are the solid biblical foundation of the mission of the church until the end. This announcement of Jesus fills our hearts with gladness and optimism and hope when we do missions. When we send missionaries, when we go forth as missionaries, when we engage in local evangelism, when we witness in our own personal lives, we must remember what God says and promises in the scriptures. Many shall come. We are often so pessimistic. We're so timid sometimes when it comes to missions. We have an attitude of defeatism. We think that our efforts will all come to nothing. We assume from the get-go that nobody will listen to us. Nobody will believe. Nobody will come. That's unbelief. Because Jesus says, many will come from the east and from the west. Go, let your light shine. Send missionaries. Preach the gospel in all the world. And be confident and hopeful that God will fulfill his promise that many will come. As many as the stars of the heaven in multitude. But we have to remember, too, that not all will come. Because Jesus concludes that glorious and hopeful promise with these words, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When he speaks there of the children of the kingdom, 
he does not mean the true children of the kingdom. But he means those who count themselves to be children of the kingdom, but are not really. He's referring at this particular moment to especially the Jews who boasted that they were the children of Abraham and therefore they were in the kingdom who boasted that by their own works, by their own obedience, they were worthy of salvation and the kingdom. Jesus says about those who boast of their own works and of their own worthiness, of their own upbringing, of their own pedigree, they will be cast out. But Jesus is not merely speaking about the Jews of his time. He's laying down a principle that's true in all times. Those who are born and raised within the kingdom of God in the external sense, who count themselves children of the kingdom, but who think that they are worthy of that kingdom because of their background, because of their birth, because of their upbringing, because of their baptism, because of their catechism instruction, because of their family name, or because of any works that they have done, as if that makes them worthy of being children of the kingdom. Jesus says about them, wherever they are, they will be cast out. Dreadful is the warning of Christ to those who grow up within the kingdom, but who do not have a true and genuine faith in Christ. Dreadful. They will be cast out into outer darkness. He speaks of a place of punishment after this life. Jesus, more than anyone else in the scriptures, taught that there is such a place that after this life, those who do not truly believe in him will be cast into that place. And it will be a place of darkness. Outer darkness. The outer refers to outside of the kingdom of God. The people of God will be in the kingdom, but these will be outside of the kingdom. And outside the kingdom will be nothing but darkness. Pitch eternal darkness. And those who have rejected Christ, the only Savior, will be cast there where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. Wailing and agony and pain and grinding of teeth when the wrath of God is poured upon them. The word that comes to us as a church made up of believers who most of us grew up in the faith, baptized in the church, is a serious warning let us take heed that we harden not our hearts as the Israelites in the day of provocation. Let us take heed lest there be in any of us an evil heart of unbelief. Let us take heed that we have a genuine faith in no one and nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Those who have a true faith in Christ have nothing to fear of that place of outer darkness. And the reason is that Christ himself suffered it for us.
Only a few years later, Jesus would give himself to the death of the cross and allow himself to be plunged into the darkness of hell. Wailing and gnashing of teeth was his lot and his suffering for those three hours when he hung on the cross. He took upon himself the awful agony of hell for all those who believe in him, for us, beloved. And that is our greatest comfort in our greatest temptations. When Jesus heard the great faith of the centurion, he said, verse 13, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. Notice, he doesn't say, because thou hast believed. He does not say, you centurion have made yourself different and better than everyone else because you have believed unlike them. No, but he says, as thou hast believed. Faith is the means by which God gives salvation to us his people. As thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. Let it come to pass what thou hast requested. And we read, his servant was healed in the self-same hour. The friends of the centurion brought the message of Jesus into the house and told the centurion what he said. In that same hour, the palsy departed from the boy. The boy in his grievous agony and torment on that bed of suffering suddenly began to feel the strength return to his hands and his feet and his body was revitalized until at last he was completely healed. The paralysis completely gone within one hour simply by the word of Christ. We can hardly imagine the joy, the relief, and the astonishment of that servant as he felt strength return to his body and the pain vanish away. And what a joy for the centurion to see his dear servant recovered, restored, strengthened, alive. What a confirmation it was to them that Jesus is indeed the Christ, Savior, and Lord. This mighty work of Jesus was a wonder of grace that pointed to his power to save us spiritually paralyzed and hell-bound sinners by his mere word. Jesus himself would accomplish that salvation on the cross by taking upon himself all of our sicknesses and all of our diseases, by taking upon him our spiritual sickness, our sinful paralysis, our depravity, 
and all of the wickedness that flows out of it. And now, through the gospel, he bestows upon us that healing and that salvation. And he gives it to those who are dear to us within our homes, our children. Merely through the word. The word does it all. He doesn't have to come physically to your house. He doesn't have to physically touch you or your children to heal you. But merely through the word, through the word of the gospel, there is power, the power of Christ to save, the power to forgive our sins, the power to heal our spiritual sickness, the power to give us relief in our agonies, in our sorrows, in our pain, in our disappointments. The power to lift us up with encouragement and peace and joy. All of that power is in the word. Christ does it all through the word. He heals us. He gives us already in this life a foretaste and a beginning of that glorious healing. According to which we dead, depraved, paralyzed sinners begin to feel life and strength come into our souls We begin to feel revitalized spiritually and to have the ability to stand up and walk. To walk with our God. To walk in His covenant. To walk in fellowship with Him. But it's just a beginning. The wonder of our text ultimately points forward to the great day when the Lord Jesus will take us out of this life when he will heal our sicknesses and diseases perfectly and finally, bestowing upon us all that he earned at the cross, taking us into glory. That will be the great day when we Gentiles in the West will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God around the table of fellowship with all God's people for all eternity, free forever, from all sickness and all disease. Doesn't that make you want to pray? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Our Father, we, we do make that prayer. We thank Thee for the Word and its power to bring healing mercies into our hearts and souls, forgiving mercies, sanctifying mercies, comforting mercies, We pray that the mighty work of Christ in this passage will serve as a strengthening of our faith, looking to him alone, and that it might be a healing balm that we walk